Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It's Spooktober here, and today we bring you The Hand by one of our favorite authors, Guy de Maupassant. A judge shares a creepy story about an Englishman named Sir John Rowell, who is hunting for a man who left his hand behind. And now, The Hand by Guy de Maupassant. All were crowding around M. Bermoutier, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. M. Bermoutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity, and by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible, which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, "'It's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known.' The judge turned to her. "'True, madam, it is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of a very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. "'but once I had to take charge of an affair "'in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. "'In fact, the case became so confused "'that it had to be given up. "'Several women exclaimed at once, "'Oh, tell us about it.' "'M. Bermutier smiled in a dignified manner, "'as a judge should, and went on. "'Do not think, however, that I for one minute "'ascribe anything in the case "'to supernatural influences. "'I believe only in normal causes. "'But if, instead of using the word supernatural "'to express what we do not understand, "'we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, "'it would be much better. "'At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, "'it is especially the surrounding preliminary circumstances "'which impressed me. "'And here are the facts.' I was, at that time, a judge at Ajaccio, a little white city on the edge of a bay which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find there the most beautiful causes for revenge of which one could dream. Enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for a time, but never extinguished. Abominable stratagems, murders becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered. My head was full of these stories. 
One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. He had brought with him a French servant, whom he had engaged on the way at Marseilles. Soon this particular person, living alone, only going out to hunt and fish, aroused a widespread interest. He never spoke to anyone, never went to the town, and every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle. Legends were built up around him. It was said that he was some high personage, fleeing from his fatherland for particular reasons. Then it was affirmed that he was hiding after having committed some abominable crime. Some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could, but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, I decided to try to see the stranger myself, and I began to hunt regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time I watched without finding an opportunity. At last it came to me in the shape of a partridge, which I shot and killed, "'right in front of the Englishman. "'My dog fetched it for me, "'but, taking the bird, "'I went at once to Sir John Rowell "'and, begging his pardon, "'asked him to accept it. "'He was a big man, "'with red hair and beard, "'very tall, very broad, "'a kind of calm and polite Hercules. "'He had nothing of the so-called "'British stiffness, "'and in a broad English accent, "'He thanked me warmly for my attention. "'At the end of a month, "'we had had five or six conversations. "'One night, at last, "'as I was passing before his door, "'I saw him in the garden, "'seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. "'I bowed, and he invited me to come in "'and have a glass of beer. "'I needed no urging. "'He received me with the most punctilious English courtesy.' sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then, with great caution, and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America. He added, and he was laughing at the time, "'I have had many adventures.' Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious details on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, Are all these animals dangerous? And he smiled, Oh no, man is the worst. And he laughed a good broad laugh, the wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also frequently... "'Been man-hunting,' he said. "'Then he began to talk about weapons, "'and he invited me to come in "'and see different makes of guns. "'His parlor was draped in black, "'black silk embroidered in gold. "'Big yellow flowers, as brilliant as fire, "'were worked onto the dark material. "'He said, "'It is a Japanese material. "'But in the middle of the widest panel "'a strange thing attracted my attention.' 
a black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand, a human hand. Not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails, the muscles exposed, and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain, riveted and soldered to this unclean member, and fastened to the wall by a ring, strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, What is that? The Englishman answered quietly, That is my best enemy. It comes from America, too. The bones were severed by a sword, and the skin cut off with a sharp stone and dried in the sun for a week. I walked closer and touched these human remains, which must have belonged to a giant. The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. This hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said, This man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, Yes, but I was stronger than he. I put on this chain to hold him. I thought that he was joking. I said, This chain is useless now. The hand won't run away. And Sir John Rowell answered seriously, It always wants to go away. This chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, Is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm, and friendly. I turned to other subjects and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room, as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls after that day, and then I didn't go any more. People had become used to his presence. Everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarmes. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party never could be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body, stretched out on its back, in the middle of the room. His vest was torn, the sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off, everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen, and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth, and his neck, pierced by five or six holes which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument, was covered with blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time, and then made this strange announcement. It looks as though he'd been strangled by a skeleton. 
A cold chill seemed to run down my back, and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down, broken. I bent over the dead man, and, in his contracted mouth, I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut, or rather sawed off by the teeth, down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month, his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn. Often, in a fit of passion which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, and which had disappeared, no one knows how, at the very hour of the crime. He would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night he would talk loudly, as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to open the windows that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated what I knew of the dead man to the judges and public officials. Throughout the whole island, a minute investigation was carried on, but nothing was ever found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping round my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery, on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there because we had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The women, deeply stirred, were pale and trembling. One of them exclaimed, But that is neither a climax nor an explanation. We will be unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred. The judge smiled severely. Oh, oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead. "'that he came to get it with his remaining one. "'But I don't know how. "'It was a kind of vendetta.' "'One of the women murmured, "'No, it can't be that.' "'And the judge, still smiling, said, "'Didn't I tell you that my explanation "'would not satisfy you?' "'Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales.' We've received some, we have received some great reviews lately, and we'd like to share a few with you now. The first one, five stars. Wonderful. I really enjoy the stories, especially the adventure and mysteries. The narrator is exceptional. It's just like sitting with my uncle, telling stories. 
That one from Saruna, 82, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Silver Blaze, five stars. Superb. Who'd have thought? That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. A great source for classic stories. This podcast keeps me entertained during the long and lonely hours on my shift in the dish room. Good stuff. That one from SJAKW, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, my favorite podcast, five stars. I listen to 1001 Stories every night. It's been a pleasure to rediscover classic stories. Thank you. Down from Sheba Owner, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, random, five stars. Enjoying my driving and traffic with your stories for company. That one from Kalasabi, Apple Podcast, India. And this one, thank you, five stars. If I didn't have this, I don't think I would have passed freshman, sophomore years. All the stories we read were in this. Emmy Ray, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Great podcast. 1001 covers a wide array of classic literature in a truly delightful way. I highly recommend the episode Sunday Ball. It's my favorite choice by the narrator so far. That one from Ashlandish29, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Down Home, Great Reading, Five Stars. I love listening to the wide variety of stories, especially Sherlock Holmes. For someone who hasn't done a lot of pleasure reading, these tales not only entertain, but provide interesting knowledge about various parts of history and authorship. That one from Super Duper EZ, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to write these reviews. We appreciate it very much, and I enjoy sharing them. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next Sunday night with a brand new episode at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Everybody stay safe. And speaking of brand new shows, how would you like a preview of our 1001 History Challenge? This is a brand new show we have. It's a short format where we take a famous phrase or quote or a saying, either from pop culture or from history, and then we give you the backstory on it and wait to give you the final details until the end. So here's a preview. We're still waiting to get that show on Apple. But all of you can listen at our central website, which houses all of our shows, and that is www.1001storiespodcast.com. Here's a preview of one of those shows. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone, to the 1001 History Challenge. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is the podcast where we take a famous quote or phrase from history or pop culture and give you most of the story behind it, minus a name and detail or two. Then we provide the rest of the story and the person or event that inspired it at the end. It's fun, fast, and always interesting. If you're a history, movie, or music buff, you'll do pretty well in this. If not, you'll learn some neat things anyway. And like all our 1001 podcasts, we'll keep it family-friendly. That's our promise. Today's 1001 history challenge phrase is jumping the shark. We hear or see this phrase often, but not everyone can tell you how it first originated or what the phrase stands for. Jumping the shark or jump the shark is commonly known as the point in a TV show or film franchise 
when it seems to become totally ridiculous. This phrase really began with the TV situation comedy, which featured a bunch of high school kids growing up in the late 50s, early 60s era, and one of its stars. You know, the leather-jacketed Italian kid who had the cool motorcycle and always seemed a few steps ahead of the other kids in high school. Yeah, we already anticipated that many of you just tore into this one, so we'll save a few toothier questions for the end. Hope you like that shark analogy. First, here are some examples of TV shows that jumped the shark and what the telltale signals were that indicated to viewers that the scripts were going nowhere. When the popular show Will and Grace approached the end of its eight-year run, the show started bringing in celebrities by the boatload. Some names? Tim Curry, Andy Garcia, Madonna, Jennifer Lopez, Britney Spears, Sharon Stone, Demi Moore, and Seth Green, just to name a few. And you can say, well, that's great. But the real stars and the storyline in many viewers' opinions got lost in the star-studded haze. Not long after, the last bells were heard as that ship sank. Then there was the Cosby Show, when little Olivia was introduced, then was given full run of the storylines, robbing the cast and characters of their parts, and viewership dropped like a stone not long afterward. Of course, thousands of TV shows have come and gone, but for old TV fans, you know that Dallas ended with Bobby in the shower, that the Flintstones ended when Fred got an alien buddy, that great show Lost ended with writer fatigue in an underground bunker, and more recently, 24 ended when the action plot lines got so over the top that not even the most loyal fans could handle it. Seems like the James Bond movies are going that way as well. But the place where it all started was in the fifth year of Happy Days, the episode Hollywood Part 3, when the Fonz, played by Henry Winkler, was challenged to jump over a shark while water skiing. Now, the Fonz inspired confidence in all the twerps who walked in his shadow, and it was the little things, like when he knocked the side of the candy machine just right and the machine produced his afternoon snack, or when he gave dating tips to Richie and Potsy. These things we could all accept as possible. But when the Fonz jumped a killer shark on water skis, it not only went too far, signaling a downhill slide for the show, but it defined a phrase that became the standard in the industry for what is also known as the beginning of the end. Word has it that writer John Hine coined the term Jump the Shark with his pals back in the 80s, and he used to maintain a website called jumptheshark.com. It's not around anymore. Hine went to work on the Howard Stern Show, and then the site just kind of lost track. When it was up, though, it maintained an ongoing list of series-killing moments. Granted, you could vote for every cause, and shows commonly had It Jump Shark on Day One as an option. The website listed actor Ted McGinley as their patron saint, as he has the most television roles in which the series slowly died off after his first appearance. One of them, appropriately enough, being Happy Days. If you can't think of who McGinley is, he played Al Bundy's neighbor who we'll name at the end, for 11 seasons and helped to make that show a success till the end. But his appearance is in the later phases of The Love Boat, Happy Days, Dynasty, and The John Larroquette Show have been laughingly attributed to his helping them jump the shark. Batmite even pointed that out when he used his powers to make McGinley replace Aquaman's voice actor in the series finale of Batman, The Brave and the Bold. And now, listeners, here's where we separate 
if we can use this old phrase, the men from the boys. What was the name of Al Bundy's neighbor played by Ted McGinley? And the names of Al's wife and kids? We'll return with the wrap-up right after this message from our sponsors. And now we return to our show. Ted McGinley played Jefferson Darcy. Ed O'Neill played hapless shoe salesman and father Al Bundy. Peg Bundy, the leopard-skin-clad couch potato played by Katie Segal. Kelly Bundy, who never met a guy she didn't know real well and whose biggest accomplishment in life up to that time was Finding Waldo, was played by Christina Applegate. And perennially horny Bud, probably the most decent member of the bunch, was played by David Faustino. Like it or hate it, it was Fox's first primetime show and huge success for years. Thanks for joining us at the 1001 History Challenge. Are you up for the challenge? The 1001 History Challenge is a proud part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network. Just search 1001 wherever great podcasts are found, and you're in for a ton of great stories. New shows at all five of our 1001 podcasts launch every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We'll see you then. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. Thank you.